It wouldn't be a Christmas episode if one of us wasn't bunged up, would no, it? No, true. but not because I've been to an office party, just simply because of a cold. Um, yeah. So apologies for my uh, slightly snotty voice this week. Um, there is an office party going on uh, next door, actually. Yeah, through keep, the glass. We keep. They've got like parsnips. They've got looks like some pretty nice food, and I'm hoping that if it's died down by the time we finish we can go in and you can grab a parsnip from a silver bowl yeah exactly I fucking hate parsnips right do you yeah no, I thought they'd be right up uh, the street no they're absolutely wrong I've I tried no no Fair. I've tried um so we're back in the basement of Soho Radio. Yep. This is the fourth episode of No Tags. Uh, not the fourth one we've recorded everything's a bit out of sync you might have noticed um well they've noticed now won't they well they've noticed now yeah, yeah. um we thought that as a little change from the interviews that we've been bringing you so far, which that is going to be the dominant mode of us yeah. bringing you yeah. uh, podcast content, but we thought we would have a one-on-one just to talk about 2023 and music and do our version of an end-of-year review, uh, as is our want, having been list makers year on year on year. But this isn't a list of lists. No, our lists not. cringe in 2023. A list's clapped, a list's over. I have a thought about why lists don't quite seem right at the moment. Yeah. And I think there's something about the fact that, obviously, when we both worked at Fact full-time and when many more music publications had many more, there were more of them and they had more staffers or more people were more frequently engaged mm. in writing and yeah. thinking about music. And more people, all told, just spent more time thinking and listening and checking out new stuff. So that at the end of the year, more people had 50-odd records to actually draw from. Really and I, and I do really, wonder really now that we've got to the point where staffers... There are there are fewer staffers, fewer publications. Freelancers can really barely make a living just thinking about music. And also less people in an office together. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? If you're not actually in the office together and putting music on the on the office speakers yeah. and like discussing it on your Slack or something, then you're just that's not. How all our weird consensus fact picks kind of yeah came. completely. Or the fact that I mean, I mentioned Slack just because we were doing things remotely as yeah. well, and that was really important. And so there are just fewer people who can realistically say, well, yeah, I did listen to like 500 records this year and here were the 50 best of them. Yeah. Whereas, frankly, <laughs> these days, you know, I spend a lot of my working week editing speech or yeah. doing a load of other like admin to do with my other job, which, yeah. you know, is not about music. And I think if you multiply that by enough people, the list starts to become a bit inappropriate almost because I just I'm just not sure that... People have a Consensus stake in picks the. Don't build the same way. Yeah, it's a really good point. So I think maybe a good place to begin is just at the top and work our way down. Start big. Start and I big. I think the biggest thing we could talk about is maybe the biggest track of the year, which you have a fairly, uh, fairly obvious contender for that title. I think, I think objectively, the biggest track of the year, if there can be such a thing, is Sprinter by Central C and Dave. Just in terms of how big it got for the scale of the artists. Um, I mean, for context, it was the biggest streaming track in the UK. Um, it's the longest a UK rap record, sorry, the longest a rap record full stop has ever spent at number one in the UK. Um, and I don't have the numbers for outside the UK, but I mean, its international impact was pretty seismic. I think it's interesting because Central C, more than, maybe not more than anyone else in the UK, but anyone I can think of right now has been like clearly targeting the US market. Like, he famously did that LA Leakers freestyle, which is all about him translating UK slang to the US. But even, like, you know, he mentions Doja Cat in his record. He mentions Ruby Rose. He mentions Kim Kardashian. Like, he really, like, tries to tap into these, like, um, North American, like, reference points. And it seems to actually be really resonating. Like, I think Kim Kardashian was sharing Sprinter a bunch on Instagram. Really? Yeah, well, just because she's, like, mentioned in one of the lyrics. But yeah, I don't know. It feels like he could finally be the one. He could finally be him, as J. Ken Bemper say. <laughs> um, and it's also kind of wild because 
I feel like this sprinter isn't the first track to do this, but there's been this really interesting thing, and it's kind of happened both sides of the Atlantic. Like, you know, the new Nicki Minaj and Lucy Vert song is an example, but like, you've had this thing which was very prominent in the UK over the last like last half a decade, let's say, where a lot of like the biggest hits have just come from tracks that I even never felt like they were designed to be a single in the first place. Or they just don't sound like singles. Like, mm. Sprinter technically has a hook, but it doesn't really have a hook. It's not, like, a big hook. It's just them. It, uh, to me, it has a strong, like, track six feel. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, I mean, it was the lead. It was part of an EP. Like, it wasn't a standalone single. It was the lead single, but it was done as part of a four-track EP and has obviously, like, completely left the rest of it behind. But, like, you're right. It sounds like an album track, and that's what's really interesting about it. Actually, when you look back at, like, what have been a lot of, like, the massive, like, really lasting UK rap hits of, like, the last, say, five to ten years. It's like, they're not songs with big big hooks. It's mm. stuff like Dave and Fredo, Funky Friday, and AJ Tracy and Dave, Tiago Silva, and, like, mm. Heady One, No Better, which everyone forgets this, but it was, like, a weird, like, clapback track to, like, a very real, like, gang situation that just became this, like, massive lasting hit. And I think there's something interesting in that because so many people and, like, you know, when people from Grime, for instance, were getting signed and people like, you know, Wiley was doing Heatwave, which obviously did go to number one, and Rolex and Tinchy Strider was doing these songs. Like, they were really trying to do the big major label hook thing. Yeah. And really being like, this is our chance to go number one. Like, we're going to put everything into making this song sound massive and sound like a number one. And actually from this new generation, they've been like way more successful at just like having these kind of low-key tracks that just like... Mm. really really resonate on a high level and just just do it i guess that's partly because of again something that we talked to jk and bemper about the the fact that the technology is working for them in a certain way yeah. right like without spotify youtube uh tiktok i mean particularly youtube and tiktok i guess th this doesn't work um and there's also an interesting feedback loop in terms of tracks being kind of picked up by the audience and then made into the the one yeah, the single rather than the label kind of having a go at guessing it and, and maybe getting it wrong, which is such a familiar story from 90s pop that I can recall, you know, yeah. pop groups, pop acts. There's a lot of dialogue right now about how, like, A&Rs just use data to sign people. Yep. But actually, this is probably, like, an example of where, like, the data works because, like, I know it was the case with AJ Tracy, Labrick Grove, like, that was an album track. But then the streams just really started to take off. 100 meters. I just put nine gal in a sprinter. 100 eaters. It won't fit in one SUV. No. SOS. Somebody rescue me. I got too many. Got too many, many. All I got. They could last me the next two weeks. All right. Kind of on a related note, then, to the sort of audience chosen hits and this feeling of. Uh, utilizing the feedback loop between technology and audience to propel your star to genuine stardom um i think we should talk briefly about ice spice sure. who is i think if if sprinter is objectively the biggest track certainly in our sort of universe i think it's fair to say that ice spice is the big breakout artist yeah um and probably boys are liar part two is the is the other the other track. objectively yeah. objectively objectively yeah. <laughs> yeah on perhaps more sort of uh, global or like american mm. terms anyway um but again it's an interesting track i mean uh obviously so munch was already out but you know she's she's ridden that wave to through to this year that was a a bit of a, a tiktok hit um there was a kind of drake leg up where he he like played it on his serious show or something all all kind of normal and then i think with this pink panthers collaboration which came out in spring then that that was just like rocket fuel for both of them and you know it's like i mean one thing is it's really kind of really nice to see like pink panthers being this massive artist in yeah. america like that's that's an unusual kind of person to cross over i guess in some ways but i think it's i mean i think boys lyra is is like that's a that's a nice tune I'm, i I'm really like that. it yeah, yeah i think that's decent um but i think there's something about like the ice spice record which is an ep which i think i think we can sense has been relatively hastily put together she only started rapping two years ago yeah. she you know she hasn't spent her whole life preparing for this moment she's kind of been flung into the spotlight and she's she's riding it pretty well all things told but the ep is more like 
you know, that should have... In the era that we often (laughs) venerate in the sort of recent yet distant past... This record could and should have been a killer mixtape. Yeah. Probably with like 20 more tracks on it, which are a bit forgettable. Well, they re-released it with like six bonus tracks or something. (laughs) They've like re-released it as like an album length. Sure, sure, sure. And I mean, I I just think there's something about the Ice Spice phenomenon that feels a little bit hastily cobbled together to me because I think, you know, we, we, we've we seen in the press this year, in the record industry press, that major labels, not the big bosses because they're just watching the cash roll in in general because of back catalogue or whatever, but record label execs, perhaps the kind that are about our age, who really want to have a hit. You know, they want to A&R someone massive. They want to be behind the biggest new artist in the world. And it's been pretty pretty sparse times for that type of yeah. breakout stars. And I think it strikes me as just a little bit of desperation to just make Ice Spice happen. And I do wonder if it's not partly to do with the fact that she's from New York. And like all of the media is in New York and all of the label people are in New York. And there are probably loads of other great young rappers from all of these increasingly localised rap scenes across the US that are back on form and responding to the collapse of the sort of top tier rap hegemony. And I mean, why is it Ice Spice? I do, I do think there's an element of it. She, you know, she is in the right place at the right time, pleasing the right sort of people. And she's not super challenging. She's actually very fun and, you know, a woman and yeah. just fun. You know, like she's she feels like a breath of fresh air. But she she's a, you know, she is a really underdeveloped artist still. And she's been thrust into like some... <laughs> there's, there's a lot riding on her success, yeah. a lot of people. You I know. think it's a really good point about the New York thing. I mean, there's definitely a thing with Ice Spice where it's like, I really like it and I really like that EP and I think that hastily put together aspect is part of it. Like it does feel really raw and kind of like someone learning on the job and like there's a bit of a magic to it. But I think in ge- like I think you're generally right. Like it was interesting like Sunny Digital tweeted the other day talking about the mixtape era which is now I guess, you know, 10 years ago but talking about how artists would have these mixtapes and being able to develop without the pressure of that project being their first album or whatever. Mm. And if Ice Spice had came out 10 years ago, and maybe even if Ice Spice came out now but was from Chicago or Baton Rouge or whatever, this would be the first mixtape that people kind of prick their ears up and like, oh, like something really interesting is happening here. But it does feel like it's been accelerated at like a pretty crazy rate. I think also watching the video <laughs> um, of Ice Spice and Pink Panther S, I mean, they bring something that is just the total cultural inverse of like a Nicki Minaj Cardi B video or something they are to me the living embodiment of the vibe shift they are designed to confuse millennials who remember this sample the first time round and don't understand where the hook is and feel like their clothes are kind of weird knockoff versions of like stuff they wore when they were 12. He said I'm good enough, but I'm not Think about that I shouldn't know. So I tell him it's one of me. He making fun of me. His girl is a bum to me. Like that boy is a cap. Saying he home, but I know where he at. Like, but he back. Think about me because he know that it's fat. I do think that this has been the year when it's felt like millennials are officially clapped. Yeah, that was actually a, um, that was a note on the uh, the pre-show notes. Which I just wrote, are millennials clapped? No, I don't think I No, sorry, I don't it. think there was a question mark. It's <laughs> it just like, millennials now clapped, which is fair. Because so much of what feels exciting and new, even in a fairly superficial sense, coming from under 25s under 21s if you like in 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 music and in sort of culture and fashion more broadly is very definitely a rejection of the generation above them i mean the most the most obvious evidence of that is the difference between the the ultimate millennial app instagram 10 years ago and now you know they like younger people i I don't want to i don't want to say like zoomers and stuff because it's not as obvious as that but there are obviously generational shifts and I think that one difference that like a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old would think of when they think about people who are like 10 or 15 years older, like millennials, is, you know, the 
sort of terminally curated desire for perfection, the Instagram grid with the symmetrical latte art and a retro filter over it and the picture of your new house keys and all of this like absolutely like boke stuff. And what what is the defining kind of Gen Z cultural product on online right now it's like the photo dump yeah i mean yeah. this this is not my original point this has certainly been made already like at least a year ago two years ago but i just think it's really striking the this desire for some kind of messiness for 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 red eyes and flash for streaky eyeliner that i've seen a makeup tutorial vid that shows you how to get panda eyes which is what we all spent hundreds of pounds on touche cloud trying to get rid of our panda eyes from wearing too much eyeliner to trailer trash the night before or whatever and they just want a rougher look, a grungier look, detritus, you know, pop culture mess. And I just think that is where the vibe shift is. And there's some, even though I spy some Pink Panthers are pretty like put together, that's still I've, there's something in what they're doing that is like it's a bit of pop detritus somehow. Yeah, yeah. Another artist that I think really defines that grungy detritus '90s flotsam jetsam rock thing. Uh, is the artist Yule um, and I listened to their record Soft Scars kind of on a whim thinking I probably wouldn't be into it and I just loved it immediately and it's not even the sort of thing that I would have liked when I was a sort of emo-ish teen but it really has this kind of it's a bit placebo smashing pumpkins or something but as with so much I think really interesting um new music from the past five ten years or so yes it uses or you know yes it makes use of cultural signifiers from the 90s or you know even straight up kind of rips off genres 100 gex being a really obvious example but it's not the same and it's not the same because it's recontextualized and it's recontextualized because the people doing it like would are different types of people this is a singaporean british-born non-binary femme presenting guitar playing front person of a band that did not exist in the 90s and i think it's really important to like keep thinking about how the recontextualizing makes a difference you know like when laura les is playing stinky like ska punk there is something different going on with how you receive that information um the album's amazing it does feel a bit like i might like accidentally sort of contagiously pick up an eating disorder through it's all like see about my skin and bones and broken but it's it's really good so that's one of my that's one of my top choices A lot of stuff like that feels like it's going on in the underground right now that really is taking cues from like shoegaze, that kind of stuff. We're at this point where like the Cocteau Twins are firmly at the top tier of 90s canonization. Like even stuff like A.R. Kane seems to have had this like really big like cultural renaissance. People like James Kay and Perilla, special guest DJ, the stuff on FreeXL. It's not all of, you know, some of it's like more like electronic-y, ambient-y, breaksy stuff, but like... It feels like that vibe is like a massive influence on a lot of it. I mean, one of the records I've listened to a lot this year is like Baby Bong, um, which I'm blanking. It's Perilla and someone else. I'll put this in the show notes. But the description is just like emo shoegazer stoner wall pop. Yeah, it's also it's also gay. Like, yeah, there's a there's a strong feeling of a kind of again a sort of a queering of pre-existing ideas of what would happen if you had an ambient shoegaze stoner project but make it queer like i yeah. do think that's that's part of the the backdrop of all of this and why some of these sounds are, are familiar yet you know fresh every time yeah no 100 percent. and like should shout out mic who ran i believe spotify took it down um for reasons i can only presume are pretty spurious but he ran a spotify playlist called black shoegaze artists Mm. which was like a really interesting database feels like it just feels like more of a pronounced influence on what's going on in the underground than it has in like a while and i guess there's a trickle down thing with like you know eve's tomb and making records that kind of sound like pavement or whatever um but you know there's been a lot of it i've really enjoyed the pretty canary stuff which is juliana huxtable's new project with via app and someone called jealous orgasm who i wasn't familiar with before but you know (laughs) great name um, I know you were big on that ASO record as well. Oh, I'm not. I'm not big on it. I You're just. Not. I just encountered it a lot. I. So I really like this record, and it's it's um, 
quite high on the crack list. Definitely, I think we can both say definitely just check out the crack list. It's a pretty good, it's, yeah. it's one of the good lists. Yeah. I, I, would, I would co-sign that. Um, but it's like so faithful to the thing that it is referencing. It is a vintage sounding kind and what's of... what's it referencing? Sorry, a trip hop, trip right. hop. It's basically a trip hop record. And there's a bunch of them. And you know what? Um, if you are part of the sort of... Uh, I don't know what you'd call it really, but because uh, I wouldn't want to use the word like dominance, but there's some sense of post-pandemic feeling like everyone else is listening to NTS. That might not be true. It might be that we're listening to NTS. I but think we both I feel like everyone's listening to NTS. A lot of my friends that aren't like deep in the music trenches still listen to NTS every morning. I, I wake up and put NTS on on my phone on my speakers next to the bed every day. So yeah, same. in the morning, particularly Monday, Tuesday, shout out Maria Somerville, the best of the oh, so early good. morning ones. I mean, I do love Spirit Blue as well, but there's just something about her like... Obvi- it's the voice. She's got the best voice. Obviously, best radio voice in the world. Obviously on a Monday morning, what you want to hear is Mazzy Star. Like, of course you do. I don't yeah. want to hear like Lauren Laverne like piping in like jungle to me. And I mean the band. You know, I just, it's it's ideal. But it's amazing how you get, you get Mazzy Star, you get Cocteau Twins, you get This Mortal Coil. It's the early mornings of really trip-hoppy shoegazy and yeah, this is just, this somehow is the headspace that that we're waking up to. And ASO again is a, a, a group that I've heard in that zone. Um, but maybe I'm reading into that too much because it's you know it's what I listen to. I don't know. No, I don't know. Like I'm at the point now. I, I do think NTS has been not solely, but like put it this way: if I'm a, if I'm at a bar and someone plays like a Phil Lynott solo record, I'm like you're an NTS subscriber. Yeah. And I'd say the same applies to like the Prefab cleaners in Sprout. Venus, Prefab Sprout, <laughs> maybe to a lesser extent the cocktails, but like, I think, I think the stuff that, that gets um, played in the bre- at breakfast, especially on NTS has some serious influence. On that note, since we're talking NTS, should we talk about some of our favourite radio and maybe mixes of the year? Yeah, as I mean, in, I know as in favourite shows on NTS. Well, radio. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm kind of like a I'm kind of like an NTS in the mornings, lot radio in the evenings guy. Ah, well, that so. but then lot radio in the evenings is the, also the morning, so technically you're staying on morning programming. True, but you know what? It's funny. I I do listen to it live, but I also kind of like have NTS live, and then I'll just go through like the lots recent shows. So, Ross Allen. Man of the Year. <laughs> right. What I love about the Ross Allen show. I love the Ross Allen show that, so much. So Ross Allen does the soup to nuts slot, which I, nobody knows why that that slot is the one. But it's the one after. It's the it's the morning one. That's not the early morning one. It's like yeah. eleven till one. Yeah. And his show is called Ross Allen Soup to Nuts. But every single time he starts, he's like. It's Ross Allen. It's the meltdown. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's like no, in none of the official blurbs does it say like this is Ross Allen's meltdown. Does he, he not? Did, no, oh, he just respect. like adds like you know. It's like you're listening to the meltdown. It's like no, NTS have not allowed you to call it the meltdown. It's called Soup to Nuts. I don't really know much about Ross Allen, but he's just one of the like one of the good old guard. Like not not old, but he, you know older. I think like you can just, call him old guard. He, just, I think that's he fair. just knows about so many fucking records. Old head radio can really go either way. Yeah, like <laughs> there are some other shows. That and, you know, I say this. We are, yeah, yeah, definitely. We're, we're, you know, we're bordering on old heads at this point. Maybe a different generation of old heads, but like, it can go so far into the like better in my day, yeah. slightly grouchy, yeah. slightly bitter, boring. You know, we've all we've all heard shows and we've all seen countless interviews with you know DJs and seen figures who act this way. He had Reggie Burrell on. Had that was Reggie a really Burrell. good episode. Really and then good and with those ones, it's great because it's like those people are not realistically going to be getting any press for much anytime soon but they've got so much information to just share and you see in the chat people being like oh my god amazing conversation so much useful information but then sometimes he'll do a show where it's like he plays some reggae and jazz at the beginning and by the end it's like gone and he he's really a very good DJ. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. you know, he can just move through those genres and make them tie together. He's the DJ that Giles Peterson wishes he was. Listen, you're not going to hear me. You're not going to hear me argue. But you know what I mean, though. There's an element of like he's in that universe, but 
he adds something a little bit different, I think. Yeah, Ross Allen, our man of the year. Um, and the other one or two for me uh, is Aquisimento, but especially Living Gattolato, both of which are like Bailey Funk shows, or, well, people still say Bailey Funk, but it's funk, whatever. Um, we just need to spend a minute talking about what the hell is happening this in Brazil right now. Year, I mean, it? yeah. it's just... You see the same old, slightly decrepit conversations going round and round about like, oh, why does it feel like nothing's ever changing? And like, oh, there's nothing new anymore. And people like recycling kind of like sort of pound shop Mark Fisher theories that weren't even really what he thought about new music anyway. And then, you know, saying that Simon Reynolds said that everything's really happened. It's like, no, we. it's just one for contextual reasons, which I've already sort of touched on. But two, just go and listen to what is happening in Sao Paulo. And not just Sao Paulo, but uh, in, in mainly in Sao Paulo, but in other cities too. It's just so fucking weird. Um, and the Living Gatlato show, oh, it's just cracking. And what I really enjoyed this year was, so there was the DJ Carr album, which is on Inyagi Tapes. And that is, I mean, it's pretty challenging to listen to it as an album. Like, I don't really know what you do with it as an album. You, you Obviously, you want to go listen to it somewhere quite loud, ideally, like on a outdoor street in Sao Paulo but also this year what I found just for me personally uh, I went to Unsound for the first time and one of the talks that I saw was a straight up lecture by a Brazilian journalist called uh, Gigi or I think Gigi uh, Albuquerque amazing name and he was really getting into the context kind of socially but you know getting into the musicology of how this like new uh, generation of funk artists are working and what they're thinking about and how the music works and how it fits together and it is different there are things happening in that music um, there are sonic signatures that signal to the crowd that they need to get their phone out now because the big drop is coming and they all film their phones in a certain way and shake their phones so you get these you know those videos of the the funk DJs doing like transitions at home but someone's filming them and it looks like there's an earthquake happening yeah, yeah, or something yeah. the whole thing has a, a strong like visual culture to it as well and they're just pushing in lots of directions and doing you know like purposely fucked up sound it's like distorted and punky and yeah it's just it's super exciting um and obviously shout out to uh internet person bill different for like flagging up a lot of this stuff i mean there's loads of it out there it's not easy to keep up with it or, or get hold of it from this angle really but live and get lato show just yeah sorted me out all year I would like to demand justice for Padam. Speak. Speak Some, on it. Come on. Something's happened. These end of year lists. I think we can get to this in a second, but Padam, which obviously you know is by Kylie Minogue. How could you have missed it? But apparently people have sort of, I don't know, that it's just not been included properly. Like, okay, it is on a few lists. But to me, maybe this says more about my life and hobbies. That was the sound of the summer, man. Padam, huge cultural moment. It's Kylie doing the thing that Kylie does so well. Like, she has a strong handful of truly, truly incredible, amazingly produced hits now. Like, not... Not dozens, but like a good five or six that are like yeah. really hands down incredible. And I heard it, you know, at festivals, at house parties, at pride parties, and immediate queer anthem, and not just and not just for a sort of, you know, not just out of fealty to a pop princess, but because it was an absolute banger. Um, and also was a multi generational hit that the young people found on the TikTok, and yeah. it was you know it came out in May, cool. which is kind of like roughly the perfect time to release something in yeah. terms of like end of year visibility yeah it seemed huge to me but it just hasn't swept the board with the end of year lists um and the other one that i wouldn't necessarily expect to but i do want to just give a small shout to uh loreen who won eurovision this year with her song tattoo um she's like she's kind of incredible she's like a she's like in her 40s she looks amazing she's like an athlete and she uh has won eurovision before like 10 years ago um and this song was just great like watching eurovision this year which you know of course is not where i go for like radical new pop music necessarily but it's always really interesting to see like what's trickled through what people are picking up on but within five seconds it was like hello like uh a real pop song calling it could have been you know it could have been a a Carly Rae it could have been a um, 
maybe an Ariella. No, I know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what pop star would have had it. But yeah, Lorene Tattoo is a great tune, and I think I think there's something going on here about not not with Lorene, but but with with Justice for Padam, my big campaign of December. Um, obviously, the most important global issue of of our time. Um, there's a real striking lack of consensus across the different end of year lists. Yeah, definitely. So I'm not saying I've looked at all of them, but basically I've looked at like the Quietus, Pitchfork, Guardian, uh, Crack. Obviously gonna... worth mentioning at time of recording. There's quite a at few that time... haven't come out yet. Uh, yeah, not loads. We're though. still waiting on RA, RA maybe. Yeah. DJ Mac albums. Anyway, okay, but in terms of um, in terms of lists that could feasibly include any type of music as opposed yeah. to dance music heavy so you know padam um well it, i mean for example the guardian and pitchfork have both chosen the same one too they've chosen lana one and ice spice pink panthress two lana yep. del rey uh, a and w which i think is a pretty great song i mean i i have been a very very late convert to the ldr cause like i i fully get it now i totally understand I would also argue, like, she's not a fucking singles artist. <laughs> she just pumps out incredible weird albums with amazing lyrics, like, year on year, and that's brilliant. But the idea that that one song is, like, the song of the year, I think is just, for number one, just not what lists of best songs should be about. And clearly, best songs should be about songs, like, best songs that we're all singing and that we all love and that are great. And it's Padam! <laughs> <laughs> but there's, like, but there's something in this, because I think it's been the case of albums as well and maybe like Caroline Polachek is the closest in terms of albums but like I feel like in years gone by and certainly when we were you know we were we were engaging a lot more heavily in the, the whole list making farm. thing yeah when we were breaking our backs on these lists <laughs> um, it felt like most years there was a a House of Balloons or a Yeezus or a Good Kid Mad City or a whatever um, you just knew it would be the consensus pick in you know all the major magazines, it might have even made RA. Like I know there was yeah. a whole there was a whole internal hoo-ha about whether RA would include Jesus or mm. not. And they're yeah, yeah, here yeah. this year. It's like I don't know. I don't know Well is do those exist anymore? Can they exist or has it just been a weird year for it? Well Caroline Polachek uh, with the album Desire I Want to Turn Into You is definitely the I think I think it's probably the one that's closest because it it captures uh, you know, it captures the imagination of the pop modernist, but it's also quite functional. She has a fairly big and kind of broad fan base and she can... Uh, the live show is amazing. And anyone yeah. who's seen the live show would, would There's also that. enough, like, interesting producers in there that ties it into, like, RA world a little bit more. Yeah, 100%. And it's also part of a trajectory um, of her... You know, it's a really... It's a really solid indie to pop trajectory by a female artist who seems totally in control of her output and is doing something that feels really innovative and you know I think that's part of the reason that she has a, a quite a strong queer following and she, it you know this, the, the songs are really good like maybe not for everybody but it's a great album so that's I think one one exception but it's not like it's even anyone's number one I don't think so I don't think so I just feel like one of the reasons for that is that on a more structural level, there is no cultural middle lane through which we can all pick up on what's happening easily. I mean, we've just been talking about like the radio that we listen to in the morning and feeling like we're not really sure <laughs> how yeah. many other people are listening. And, you know, it's it's like a sort of, um, you know, like, pop balkanization where the middle ground disappears and every everything is just specialist now and it's like you get to the end of the year and I'm looking through lists of best songs and thinking like oh haven't heard that haven't heard that and I'm like new jeans super shy what is that song where would I have heard that and I have heard of new jeans but I didn't follow it up they're a k-pop band you know that's not going Maria Somerville didn't play them like and who is playing them and I thought okay well maybe it's been on Radio 1 Eugene super shy big hit 50 odd million plays or something no it doesn't seem to have ever been on BBC Radio 1 except and I might have got this wrong maybe I'm just somehow not able to navigate the playlist archive but from what I could see, New Jeans have been on, this particular song has been on Molly King from the Saturday's specialist show called Future Pop on Radio 1 once and that's like a specialist show. So it's not like on the B list, but and yet it's like number, you know, seven or something, the Guardian list, whatever. And it's clearly massive. 
So where can you hear it? And I think, you know, when we were growing up, not only did you have stuff like obviously Radio 1 being an obvious cultural middle lane where everyone could just pick up on what was happening, but even little things like an, an ad for the new Channel 4 series would have, like, do you, remember, do you remember in 2010 when everything just had the XX in the background? Yeah, and that's how you knew the XX was going to be so massive. And it's really difficult. There's very, there's very little mainstream space in which to encounter this consensus taste, like in the shopping centre or something. And it's obviously part of a progression towards the end of anything like a mass media and you see it also in the way that streaming has just like fucked the Christmas charts forever so even though well, you weren't checking for Lad Baby this year <laughs> actually they sorry they took this year off didn't they oh Lad Baby yeah yeah, yeah yeah well even though um uh back catalogue I'm not sure where the cutoff point is but even though older songs there's a rule where everything's weighted so Mariah Carey needs to get streamed it's three more, times as much three times yeah. as many times to count for one equivalent streaming play now yeah. and of course that's still uh, 10 times compared to buying the record or whatever and and yet even still in november the top 10 has got mariah wham elton john and then by the time you get to christmas it's just wall to wall so there's no yeah. there's no christmas chart anymore i mean it, that, that's been bad for ages we know this like, we know that there hasn't been a new christmas song since mariah that is a pop phenomenon i'm trying to think because well, i was very aware of the new jeans thing this year I but that, but it was, that's it I though, think isn't it? it was that... Just on Twitter, like I never heard. So I, I, I think the big thing was that EP got announced, and I heard people talking about the fact Erica Decassier had contributed to it, yes. and people were like, "This is a big win." I'm a big Erica Decassier fan, so I was like, "Cool, I'm going to check this out." And then I saw, "I'm what's the name of the track?" We went through this off mic earlier. That kind of rips off Debonair Samir's ETA. ETA, and then I saw the dialogue around that. What does it rip off? Sorry. I would say it rips off Debonair Samir's uh, Baltimore Club Classic, Samir's theme. And judging by my Twitter feed, a lot of artists from Baltimore and New Jersey agree with that. Um, but yeah, I kind of heard the discourse around it before I'd heard the music. Well, both, I, both that track and Super Shy. But, I mean, also, I'm not saying... I'm not for the saying record, I was aware of who they were. I don't want to yeah, say yeah, like yeah. I was... But yeah. And I... But I think I'm, your general point is right in the sense that like, we hear about this stuff online, but like... There's not really like a channel for it in the same way. I'm ambiently aware. And of course, at any time I could be like, hey, what does New Jeans sound like? I have seen people talk about it. I could go and find out. Like, fine, 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 fine. But clearly it used to be that you didn't necessarily have to actively find things yeah. out. Stuff just happened around you and you absorbed it a bit more easily. And the other tracks, sorry, Super Shy is the one I mentioned. And that is also, I mean, uh, incredibly neutered, but it is sort of a Jersey track yeah loosely like a, in, in the way that lots of pop now is yeah um, i was really do you know tyler water i presume is it tyla tyla yes i thought that was going to make a real late like autumn charge oh yeah to be yeah, like yeah. the top 20 of every year, end of year list but again like that one just hasn't seemed to have i mean it's been like a massive hit but i've not seen that kind of achieved i like, wonder if i came across that in the so I had a look at Spotify tracks of the year thing the other week right just like done by streaming by numbers U kind of thing. UK tracks of the year sprinters at the top um, and it's quite interesting that actually well it's certainly interesting when you think about what the um, what the lists we've mentioned have got in them because the top streamed tracks according to Spotify include lots of Amma slash Afrobeats music, sure, yeah. basically African artists. And let's face it, they've been totally missed off all of these lists who are made by probably virtually zero um, British African people. Yeah, should actually shout out at this point, um, The Large, I think it's fine to say, his future guest, The Large, yeah. who um, her Sound of Vision user is excellent, but her recent one had quite a big chunk about Amma Piano and people in Jamaica using Amma Piano rhythms and stuff like that. And again, it feels like her newsletter is basically the only place I have read this kind of critical thinking on it. I think also it's an interesting one because obviously, unfortunately, <laughs> arts journalism has just been decimated. But it really is like British music journalists' responsibility, all seven of us, to try to document this more carefully because... African diaspora music obviously has much, you know, it has really, really deep links to Britain at this point. There are more black African British people than Caribbean British people mm. now, right? And that link up, that feedback loop, the black Atlantic 
loop that has been going on for so long is that an incredible new stage and again coming back to the thing of there being no new music or something it's like have you tried looking below the equator yeah (laughs) there's a lot going on and yet actually the the transatlantic feedback loop that is animating the top of these lists is more like this um uh drum and bass jersey drill thing which is also totally valid but that is not picking up on i'm a piano and afro beats and and the just the just the hugeness of that that yeah not not even genre but just just culture that is kind of and here now it's it's you know it's massive in the uk Mm. like shows are doing crazy ticket numbers yeah yeah and um yeah it doesn't feel like the usual suspects have really picked it up but We should move into dance music more properly, I think. Um, yeah. It won't take very long because there are, there were three tracks this year. Uh, one was Bubbling by Julio Bashmore, which coincidentally was released by you. Yes, I, I've got my... <laughs> I'm sitting on my hands for this but, one. It's like, great to have Bashmore back. Come on. Hell, though, if it had been released by anyone else, I, I'm pretty sure we'd still be sat here yeah, talking about it. Yeah. Like, that's that's the point. It's great to have Bashmore back. Um Number two, uh, Installation by Pangea, who then got an absolutely glowing write-up in Pitchfork for the album, which is like a pretty, pretty good album, pretty, pretty good. Um, but that was, uh, I, I guess, was a little bit more functional. I think Bashmore's was a bit more ex- fittingly eccentric, as maybe, I think yeah. maybe he's, he's an eccentric is. guy. He's a very eccentric guy. <laughs> um, and then certainly my personal favourite dance track of the year, which I penned a few words on for crack, uh, was Hudmo and Nicky Nair set the roof on fire, which to me is just like all the great mad exciting things that we all used to absolutely piss ourselves about with Hudmo where it's like oh my god he's just built the Taj Mahal in my back garden and it's also really really minimalist which is always yeah. a great flourish compared to the Tonight stuff which you know ultimately opened a Pandora's box which we might have <laughs> not wanted Maybe. to open I, re- I really love all the and I think we obviously need to talk about Nicky Nair as well because I think what's so nice about this is he's been like arguably I would say the outstanding like underground dance like oh. artist of the last like two three years and i think what's just so nice hard working like, like midfield mvp oh, just setting up goal yeah. after goal in people's dj sets worldwide seriously <laughs> he's like the sort of like Jorginho, you know when he like <laughs> finished third in the ballon d'or or whatever it's ha- like... have you ever seen him dj as well nikki no mm, i saw him at unsound having not seen him before and it was really 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 yeah. good like really wild really like hard and dr- sort of dry i don't know like just really just yeah relentless but in a like a euphoric way yeah i think it was sick but he's like also had such range like all the records kind of leading up to this point i mean including this one as well but like there's a real range to them it's kind of all over the place and he's also clearly like selling units like i think his dirty bird stuff was pretty regularly at the top of like the b-port charts yeah and it's really nice that it's kind of you know with an with an assist from hubmo like solidified in this really nice like culturally recognised moment where it feels like it felt like that was I mean when Crack made that number one track of the year which you obviously blurbed I was like that's a great choice Yeah, yeah you can't yeah. argue with that yeah and I do think um, that, you know part of the point that I made in this little sort of mini essay is like this is the type of track where in future you will be able to place what year it was mm, that it came definitely. out because it's just got that immediacy like you will be able to remember like that I only heard it I'm gutted really I only heard it at one like event this year um which is at field maneuvers in an otherwise like <laughs> pretty atrocious set of just like quite basic wally bangers but it came on and I just like ran in do you know what I mean it's just like yes really loud yeah. and I, I just think I'll always be able to place it in that way in the same way that I don't know like for what it's worth you'll always remember like the sort of bicep glue era or something like it just has a presence as an anthem it is an anthem yeah agreed so I I feel like the other big headlines in dance music on the more uh, macro scale are first of all well this is this this goes beyond just band camp but Bandcamp, um, yeah. Rocky Road. So from a year ago, being sold to Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite and loads of other video games, which was 
I mean, in retrospect, <laughs> it all seems really obvious that that was going to be the beginning of a, a, a decline. But at the time, and I, I wrote about this for The Guardian at the time, I, you know, I tried to sort of see the bright side of it because I felt like Epic itself as a company has a, you know, kind of underdog-ish history within the broader video games industry. And... Though they didn't seem they didn't seem super interested in changing anything about it, and nothing did immediately change. One big change was that uh, quite a few Bandcamp workers immediately uh, formed a union, or immediately attempted to form a union, and eventually were recognised as Bandcamp United. And li- a, y- a year later, they get sold to this sort of vehicle called Song Trader, uh, which is a you know venture capital backed um, sort of. Uh, company trading as song trader you know it's it's a vehicle for other companies and ultimately to make money with because that's the kind of company it is which is not what Bandcamp was for so many years of its life and I interviewed the CEO of Bandcamp a few years ago Ethan Diamond and you know like it makes me it just makes me feel like I was like duped by this guy basically because he just seemed you know like he's like a sax player and he loves like living in San Francisco and he was telling me like the growth chart for Bandcamp and he held his hand up and he did this like tiny, tiny, tiny little incline. He's like, it's like this. It's like nothing, but it's up. And we're just happy with that. And we're just like really, really into that. And I was like, wow, that's such a great company. Yeah. And in fact, no, they were just going to fucking sell it. And I don't even Every understand Every man has their why. price, right? Yeah, but but it's not like, they weren't like a a adventurous startup hoping to become a industry industry disrupting unicorn that would eventually go public so that the founders could cash out and then all of the investment could be made good it was just a functioning company that had basically become the de facto you know membrane of global yeah. underground music and then suddenly to be sold and then to announce a load of layoffs who not coincidentally uh, disproportionately included active members of Bandcamp United, the union. Oh, I don't know. It's just like, you just feel like a mug, don't you? Yeah. Like, this is something I've, I've honestly, and this is very much a, like a, a do as I say, not as I do thing. I've been banging this drum for a while, even before the first takeover, where like huge, you know, found a historical founder Bandcamp completely changed what we did with our record label. But like, yeah. you know, I feel like we've seen it so many times at this point, whether it's, you know, there was a period where your numbers on Facebook were everything. From a record label perspective or an artist perspective, then it was your SoundCloud was everything. And, you know, we're now, I think we're almost undoubtedly seeing the demise of Twitter and probably Instagram in the near future as well. And anytime you are relying on one platform that you are not in control of, you're at risk. And I've always been, like, mm. banging this drum to people that, like, Bandcamp's great, but, like, build your mailing list, which I have done, but also, like, have your own web store, which I haven't done, and... Yeah, given everything that's going on, I think there'll be a lot of um, labels and artists kind of scurrying to try and make insurances for that because who knows, but the future looks rocky. Have you actually noticed anything detrimental to the running of local action at this point, though, or is it just kind of worries? Bandcamp specifically? Mm. Um, Yeah, but nothing that Bandcamp have caused. I mean, a big thing has been like, and this has been more publicised, but like I think most labels had a big boom during the pandemic because of Bandcamp Fridays, but also people had spare income. There was mm, kind of a realignment yeah. in terms of supporting artists. Like our physical went through the roof. Yeah. And then postage costs, like post-pandemic. I went to the post office the other day. Do you know how much it costs to walk into the post office and send a letter to America? A letter. I don't know. Nine pounds. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you like pre-book and use one of those services, like... It's cheaper, but to walk into the post office wow. and try and send no, you know, not not signed for, just a regular letter to the US. It's nine yeah. quid, and like, and and also, I mean, do you know what we we hadn't planned to talk about this, but I've just now remembered. Obviously, Discogs is like in an absolute state. Yeah, I've kind of missed the whole Discogs thing because I don't use it. As I don't, I don't really use it. I used to a lot, but I don't now. So I've kind of only like seeing this like third hand on Twitter. Well, I believe there are a couple of things going on. One, for UK users and sellers, it's just... <laughs> who could have foreseen the impact of Brexit? It's just like, gotcha. well, it's now just impossible to post anything or receive anything from the EU because you have yep. to pay like 20% extra and it just makes the whole thing stupid. Well, and you need something called an IOSS number, which 
Um, actually, Bandcamp were pretty decent. It took them a while, but they were pretty decent about contacting all labels and sorting that side of things. But mm. if you're just like a person selling your collection on Discogs, yeah. I don't know how you get access to that number. Well, the other thing is that Discogs themselves, um, users seem... Uh, not agreed on exactly what is going on and why, but Discogs raised the seller fees and maybe even the cut on something else. There were, I think, there were a couple of different fees that they where they raised their cut only by quite a small amount. But it kind of means that it's become very hard for sellers to sell a record in the price range of like five pounds. Right. Say. So there's no more bargains and that makes it harder to for example like bundle records together which is obviously like a great thing that you can be doing on discogs and there's a sense that um, someone is trying to package up discogs to make it look more appealing to ultimately sell it because you know at at the moment I don't don't think it's like a historically massively money-making project I think much like Bandcamp it you know it exists and it 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 works for a whole community and they take a little cut and it kind of functions but I mean just look at the website like it's not as though they're wasting loads of money on web design for example but you know we talk all the time on this podcast about digital chronicling well what would happen if Discogs went if Discogs dies tomorrow how the hell are you gonna go back and you know yeah tell someone what number 004 was in the dance yeah, mania catalog like, like who engineered a record and what right they exactly exactly you know? discogs you know for dance music specifically like because also even if this even if this stuff is released digitally um a lot of the time when stuff is like bundled together like old labels catalogs whether that's bought or whether someone involved in the label just like uploads it in bulk like a lot of time those credits aren't even there yeah really have to mention that the issue of Palestine has had such a huge impact on I mean I guess music generally but whatever let's um, let's just stick with dance music because that's kind of where we're most most deeply involved um it's just such a massive impact and I think the response to the bombardment of Gaza among sort of dance music people both both fans and you know artists and DJs I think can only really have come um post the Black Lives Matter era I think that really like set the groundwork for a much more radical and engaged youth culture where politics is a given and yeah. for better or worse quite quite uh, thick battle lines can be drawn sometimes and you know that can also make it a little bit difficult to have any sort of nuance and obviously leads us towards some quite complicated um, sideshows of cancellation rather than dealing with the actual issue at hand. But I do think it's worth just acknowledging the way that it's playing out in dance music for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that, of course, uh, one of the like most horrific um, sites of the 7th of October incursion was at a Psytrance rave in Israel that was something like a, a kilometre from the border of Gaza. Um, so obviously there are knock-on effects because, you know, people know people and, and ravers are global and Israeli ravers are global because a lot of them go travelling after their year in the IDF that's, uh, well, the th- I think it's three years actually, that's compulsory when they're teenagers. Um, 18, 19, 20, and they go all around the world and meet each other. And lots of people have met Israeli backpackers at raves all around the world. It's like part of the, you know, it's part of their global link with the world. And that um, many DJs and artists are obviously based in Berlin. And in Germany, they have a completely uh, outlier (laughs) attitude for obvious historical reasons towards Israel, where the left is historically pro-Israeli, um, the anti-Deutsch left, as, as they are sort of known. And that means that for DJs and artists in Berlin, uh, I mean, I'm just saying Berlin because that's mainly where they all are, but in Germany, um, they're in a really impossible situation. There is actually like state uh, repression and surveillance of people who express solidarity with Palestine. It's risky for them to speak openly about it. Um we are seeing people kind of find ways around that but obviously some of the you know there are there are limits to the the level of activism that's possible when you have a, a you know increasingly sort of like authoritarian government response to an issue which actually has you know as as in the UK there is 
broad public sympathy with Palestine that is not reflected in the media or, mm. or in, in government. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's just worth saying something about the, the just feeling of the powerlessness that 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 comes from that. Not only because you know a, a good chunk of club culture is, lives in a country where it becomes very difficult to speak out for fear of being deported because probably you're not from Germany in the first place, um, but also this feeling of well, what do we do? Do we do we dance for Gaza? You know, do we do we put on a club night and and whatever? And well. I, d I feel like maybe maybe you do do that, but you also do all the other things and you write your letters and you go to marches and do sit-ins and raise awareness and, and whatever. I mean, I do think politically there's pretty minimal clout in this country that you can get from that. But on the other hand, to me, the feeling of... Um, I, gu I guess actual solidarity, even in our quite feeble... Um, broadly impotent political state from just going on some marches in central London I think the feeling of building solidarity with the people of Palestine is is still powerful and I've, I've I have always believed I think that dance music has something political in it that is always latent you know I have I had previously thought this about the climate crisis but I've sort of given up on that idea I think because I don't think anyone I don't I ultimately I don't think that people are, are going to organize around that very well for the same reasons that they don't organize well about on on climate activism elsewhere but I think with Palestine and as with Black Lives Matter it's like this is your constituency for this issue you know it's a it's a global racially and ethnically diverse group of people who can see what this political situation is um and i don't know where that leads us but i think there have been some reasonably like plausible comparisons with vietnam and the type of cultural shift that happens around vietnam in america in the 60s and 70s um you know sort of almost regardless of the political outcome I, there was something about Vietnam that also really uh, fermented that particular counterculture. And I don't think you can necessarily count out that the anger and horror around what's happening in Palestine can do something similar. Not that that is the uh, most important thing by any means, obviously. But I think that it's been interesting to feel like people have something that they really, really care about and that they're willing to, like do something about that that's that's concrete and not just like you know about their rider or something you know it's not just it's yeah. not an internal insular introspective issue it's like what is actually happening in the world yeah i couldn't say it about myself if you've listened to the other few episodes um you'll have gathered that at the end of the episode we ask our guest for a film recommendation um why? Because films are good, really. That's it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> better than music at this point. Yeah, possibly. Um, so, I don't know. We've both made these, like, we've made lists that are a bit big. But why, how how are we going to boil this down? Do you want to do? Know. I feel like. Do you want to give me the best film that you've seen that was new this year, and then maybe the best film that you've seen that was archival? Best film I saw that was new this year is tough. I think there's been three that stood out. Absolutely loved Anatomy of a Fall. I thought it was brilliant, like absolute acting powerhouse. I'm actually someone that's like into films, but I'm not that big on like particular actors in a weird way, like to the point where like, unless it's someone I'm very familiar with, I often just don't recognise actors from one role to the next or be like, I, what the hell's that person's name? Yeah, I, actually, um, I've, I sort of find that as well. Maybe I, I do think I've got a touch of the face blindness. Though, yeah, I, I definitely do. Um, <laughs> it's really useful when you work in the music industry, I find. Yeah, seriously. Um <laughs> But yeah, something about anatomy, anatomy of a fall, like it's kind of rare I leave a film feeling that this way, but it's just like... It's like a acting court, courtroom drama, right? Yeah, it's a French courtroom drama um, that's Perfect. half in French, half in English. And like, <laughs> honestly, even right down to the dog, which without spoiling anything, is like comfortably the best acting by an animal I have seen in a film. <laughs> like some of the stuff this animal does is like beyond what I've seen an animal do in a film before. But like, the kid is incredible. The mum is incredible. The like bastard lawyer on the other side of the courtroom is incredible. It is just like an acting tour de force. Huge, huge, huge recommend. Um, What's I'm, it called again? Anatomy of a Fool. Um, really, really enjoyed Past Lives, uh, which is a sort of like Korean-American. I want to call it a rom-com because it is quite light at times. Um, but it's also just like really heavy, really touching, really beautifully written there are kind of points where you feel like it might descend into cliche a little bit and it always steers clear. 
Um, yeah, big recommend. And then it's technically from November last year, but I really, really loved After Sun. I mean, that's been recommended all over the shop, but that film absolutely rocked me. Had no idea where it was going to go, went into it blind, which is really nice. And just like, yeah, we'll never be able to listen to um, Under Pressure the same way again. <laughs> just to, you know, call back to Queen from our previous episodes. I haven't seen any of those films, unfortunately. I really want to see Anatomy of the Fall. Yeah. I haven't watched After Sun because I know that it's about a father-daughter relationship and everyone says that it's like you know had me in tears and it's so emotional and I, I couldn't really do that because my dad died last year and I just thought I'm just gonna park that and see and now I'm a bit worried I've absorbed a bit too much sort of ambient information about what it's like to sort of care anymore uh, but I will I will watch it um my new films it's a bit annoying because it, it did occur to me today that I'm pretty confident that my three favorite new films from this year I actually haven't seen but I know that they would be my three favorites I still haven't seen Tar. Oh, Tar's great. Oh, I just, I just know that I just like yeah, yeah, even Tar's, if I hate Tar's it, great. I know I'd love it. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen May December, the new Todd Haynes film. I watched that last night. Oh, yeah, yeah. Am I gonna love it? Am I gonna love it? I really enjoyed it. I didn't like. Okay. It wasn't quite on the level of those to me, but I really okay. enjoyed it. Okay. And again, speaking of, I mean, this has been pretty well publicized. I can't remember his name, but the male lead, who's alongside Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. Oh, Corbin. I didn't know there were any men in it. I thought it was just those two. Yes, <laughs> and he is like excellent. Okay. Like he's he really steals the show. Um, and the zone of interest, which is Jonathan Glazer's film. Yeah. That I need to do that over Christmas. Yeah. That's so right anyway, up there those are probably my top three. But um, the actual one that I saw in the cinema, I'm sorry, it's Killers of a Flower Moon, and it's simply for this reason. I mean, I've I've read quite a bit of the sort of um, uh, reviews and commentary around it, and I I'm, I certainly have a, a sympathy with uh, the, the slightly more um, critical investigations of the portrayal of the Osage people because ultimately it is a film about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro um, and and I, I do understand that some of their agency is I think ultimately quite limited. I think that's not just um, an issue of the Osage people having less agency. I think ultimately like you don't go to a Scorsese film to like find out what the women are thinking very often. Like That's just not really what those films are about. Fine. And I, I just think it's such a it's such a brilliant cap to a career which has been spent in the mind of a, a type of American who himself is not truly assimilated, you know, like the Italian-American and, you know, until, you know, relatively relatively recent history was not really considered a white American. Um, but in this particular story, I think it's really great that, you know, America's best filmmaker is fully dedicating himself to un unveiling, no, that's not even the right word, to um, exposing the like settler colonial horror that is at the heart of America because you see these incredible looking Osage Nation people with their fancy cars and their furs and you're like that's so weird it's like a weird sci-fi it's like no no they were once really rich they had loads of oil money and what happened um, and just the experience of like going to the cinema in 2023 to see a Scorsese film starring Robert De Niro with this incredible score by Robbie Robertson um, who of course is of uh, Indian heritage himself it's like that is never happening again that's like a real yeah. night out and yes it's three hours long the person sat next to me left halfway through God really? <laughs> yeah he Come just on. walked out I mean I um, haven't been to this I haven't watched it for that reason but like once you strap in you can't Oh, you can't yeah. leave the car. No, no. Um, so I, I think I would say that one. Um, I'd like to uh, move on to my own um, older film that I saw this year that I really loved because it stars Sandra Huller, who is the star of Anatomy of a Fool. Right. And it's okay. called Tony Erdman. And uh, in fact, the guy who plays her dad in Tony Erdman, uh, Peter Simonisicek, I think he died this year even. And... I mean, funnily enough, this is a, a daddy-daughter one as well, which was pretty... I mean, the 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 premise loosely is that she is a successful, probably like mid to late 30s woman who I think is a consultant and I think is working on something like... Um, she's a sort of McKinsey-style consultant who I think is trying to push through some sort of like restructuring an oil and gas company in like... Uh, I think it's Albania or something like that. So she's she's sort of a high-flying, ethically dubious businesswoman. And she has this quite strained relationship with her father, who is this practical joker, and does things like he turns up to the country, the city that she's working in, to visit her. And he like insists on like 
he'll be wearing like ugly false teeth and he turns up to like a party that she's at where she's like doing coke with the guy that she's like hanging out with whatever and the resolution of it is so perfectly inadequate for those of us who have any type of vaguely similar relationship with our dads where you just there comes a point where you just like that's all you're gonna get and that's you just accept that and then that's actually where there's like a certain like joy and I just found it I mean it's German it's a comedy and it's like three hours long it's on paper it doesn't yeah, sound three like things that don't necessarily <laughs> go together and I just found it absolutely just it just bowled me over and I had such a it was it was just a relationship that I just you so rarely see on screen like father-daughter relationships I'm you know I'm always a little bit sensitive to seeing them portrayed and they're so often just not very relatable um as I suppose lots of you know parent-child relationships on screen are but that one was um yeah I just can't can't recommend it highly enough it's quite old it's from like 2016 right okay um what was your favorite archival film of the year as it were it's funny you talk about reissue yeah favorite reissue (laughs) it's funny you talk about the Italian-American experience uh, because... <laughs> being Italian-American being yourself, Italian-American myself. <laughs> um, no, I actually watched Mind Scorsese's Italian-American for the first time ah. <laughs> recently, which may be the only Scorsese film I can think of that essentially stars a woman, but it is a... I haven't seen that one. I think it's actually on YouTube, but I watched it on Criterion because I subscribed Oh, recently. I've just realised what this is. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's one that's been on my list for ages. And then it's also like... It's, it stars the out. only woman that he can think of, his yeah. mother. <laughs> it's so great. It's like, it starts off so gentle and it's just him interviewing his mum and dad right. um, about their family immigrating to America, about growing up in New York in the early part of that century interspliced with loads of amazing archival footage of New York. But then it just very slowly, very subtly uh, just ascends into something with like a real weight to it Mm. and a real power to it. And yeah, just I thought it was going to be something really gentle and quite joyous. And actually it it, it transforms into something like really emotional and beautiful and heavy. And um, yeah, less than an hour. So that's interesting that so many of so many of our choices are about parents. Yeah. What that does that true. say about the sort of clapped millennials? God, <laughs> I know. Feeling a bit creaky. So perhaps all we need to do is say happy Christmas. Yeah. Or happy happy any holidays. holiday you wish. Thank you happy for listening. Happy winterful. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back in the new year with quite a lot more uh, already recorded interviews and yeah. uh, quite a few more slated. Maybe if you've got any ideas of people that we should speak to, that would be interesting to know. Yeah, drop us an email. What else can we end on? Oh, yeah. Never trust a Swifty. Never trust a Swifty. (laughs) Peace out. Happy holidays.